So um, a very warm welcome to everybody here today. Um, we're looking a little thin on the ground today, aren't we? Joke, because we're all spread out a little bit more. Yeah. Um, today we're going to be continuing with this series on David. Abraham Lincoln was um, a president in America. You probably know that. If you know your history from school. From about 1862 to about 1865, one of the um, most famous that things that he is known for is when he abolished the, uh, managed to get through the, the, the bill that freed all of the slaves in America. And that was quite a big feat. Um, he was also the first um, president in America to be, a sa to be satisfied, uh, to be satisfied, to be um, assassinated. The other thing about Abraham Lincoln was that um, he had, towards the end of his life, he confided in a, in a friend of his that he used to have these recurring dreams. And uh, in this recurring dream, the same dream that recurred, he used to see himself in a wide river in a boat. He had no oars. Um, he was out, out there stuck in that boat. It was dark. He could barely make out the banks of the river. And here he was just floating down the river in this boat uh, and he had absolutely no control of anything. And he confided in his friend that he felt that that was where he was at, even though he was the most powerful person, man in the world at that time. He, he kind of felt like uh, uh, that he really didn't have a lot of control of anything. Now today, we're going to be continuing with this story of David's and we're going to be looking at David's desert years. And I'm sure as we, uh, as, as we um, consider this today, that you would realize that David may also have felt that, that he was not totally in control of things. The back story to this, if, um, the back story to, to David's um, time in the wilderness is this. That just backing up to where Wayne finished off last week, David, um, since killing Goliath, was living in Saul's household. And, and while he was there, he made friends with Jonathan. Jonathan and him were like brothers in the same household. Um, and they um, shared together so much, and they were best friends. And uh, it's an interesting story because Jonathan should have been the successor to Saul's throne, going by normal succession rules. That would be right, wouldn't it? Saul was the king, Jonathan was the son, not David. Uh, and you would expect that Jonathan would normally uh, be the successor of the throne. But Jonathan knew that God had assigned David for the successor to David's, uh, to Saul's throne. And Jonathan was totally selfless about this fact. It's quite an incredible thing. And he supported David absolutely all the way in this. But Saul wasn't accepting of it. As far as Saul was concerned, his son was the, was the successor to the throne. And he had made several attempts to try and kill David. Um, and David, uh, as we pick up our story, came to Jonathan and said, what is my crime? How have I offended your father that he is so determined to kill me? 
And Jonathan said, that's not true. He says, you're, you, are, you are not going to die. But David convinced him that this is what Saul was doing. He'd already had a few javelins thrown at him, and he had to flee on occasions before. And so the two of them hatched a plan. And this is what the plan was, that there was a feast, and David would be absent from that feast. And if Saul appeared to be good with it, then fine. But if after, because the feast went on for a few days, if Saul was not good with it and he started to throw his javelin around again or lose his temper as he was inclined to do, then they would take that as a sign that it was time for David to leave. And this is what happened. Saul, uh, uh, Saul after a few days, noticing that David's seat was empty, um, lost his cool completely and swore at Jonathan and said, you think I don't know that you want him to be the king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so that I can kill him. And so this is what's, what happened. So Jonathan then leaves him, he comes out to where David was hiding amongst the rocks and by shooting arrows, according to a predetermined um, sign language between them, he shot the arrows long and David knew from that that things were not well back in the palace. And then after that shooting took place, then uh, Jonathan sends his servant back into town and David comes out of his hiding place and there they said goodbye. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, and especially David. Then David left, and then Jonathan went back to town. I find myself getting quite emotional as I think about this part. And we might question even whether Jonathan did the right thing there as he went back to town. If he really supported David as much as he did, we understand, don't we, it's easy to criticise from 3,000, 4,000 years further on, but Dave, Jonathan did go back to his family and David left. At a later date, when the only other time when these two ever met again after this, Jonathan had said to David, You're not, my father's not going to find you, he's not going to kill you, you will be king and I will be first after you, something that never happened because Jonathan did not survive that long. And so we start today now with David's desert experience. As David went out from there, where did he go? Where was he going to go? He had no chance to go back to town to pack his bags. He had no chance to go back and pack some food. He couldn't go back to Bethlehem where, his, where he had come from because Saul was sure to, to hunt him down over there. Um, and kill him, so where was he to go? And so he leaves. This is what he does. He lives in the cave of Adullam for many years. And then while he's there, about 600-odd people, totally disillusioned with the way things were in the country and with Saul's leadership, they come out and join themselves to him, and so they become a big band, which is even harder to hide, isn't it? If you've got 600 people with you, where do you hide? But we'll talk about that in a moment. And so they, they hid in that cave of Adullam um, for a while, and later they went and lived in the forest of, uh, uh, whoops, just a moment. 
of, of Herath, and then eventually they went and lived in a town in the Philistines, and the Philistines accepted them and allowed them just to live in this town uh, for many years, and eventually the season came to an end. I just want to talk about two stories that happened during the course of, uh, of this time there in the desert. And the first one I've called Innocent Consequences because something happened here in the desert that was absolutely not David's fault. And yet the result of it was catastrophic. David, as he, after he leaves Jonathan, he goes to Ahimelech, as he's named, a priest in a little town called Nob. And he asks him for some food. And that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, isn't it, Ash? But, um, but the priest, Himalek, didn't have any food other than the food that he had taken off the altar after it had been there for a few days and they had replaced it with new stuff and so he gave him all of the food that he did have. And then Jonathan also, David also asked him if he'd got a spear or a sword or anything because he's got absolutely nothing either to, either to kill animals and get food from or to defend himself. He's got absolutely nothing. And Himalek said, the only weapon I've got here is that sword that you... That, uh, that was Goliath, and you used it to kill Goliath with it. He says, I can give you that. And David said, yeah, give me that. It's a good sword. But unfortunately, there was one person there. His name was Doeg. He was a shepherd of Saul's. And he just happened to be there when all of this happened. And, you know, have you ever been to a place where you've gone to see somebody about something which is a little bit sensitive, and when you get there, there's somebody there that you really didn't want to be there. Well, David had that situation. There was this guy there, and he thought, oh, man, this is one of Saul's guys. How am I going to handle that? From that, Saul does hear that David has been to Nob and to this man, Himalek, and he has... Um, And he goes out to get revenge against Ahimelech. And when, he, and when he gets there, he accuses Ahimelech of supporting David against him. David was, Saul was getting so jealous about the things that, um, that were going on around him. And he accused Ahimelech. And Ahimelech said, look, you know, David comes to me for, for spiritual advice often. You know, what, what was so special about that particular day? I gave him some food. I gave him the sword. Um, and... He didn't tell me that there was anything between you and him. But it's not enough to do to. It's not enough uh, to convince Saul, and he asked his people, his servants, to actually kill all of the priests. And believe it or not, the servants refused to. But he asked Doeg to. That same man, who, who, who had actually um, potted him anyway. And he went through and he killed everybody that was there that day, 85 priests and all, still wearing their priestly garments and their families. And he went throughout the whole town and killed all the priest families, men, women, children, babies, and all the cattle, donkeys, sheep, and goats. Only Abiathar, one person, escaped from the whole family, and he flees to David, and David... Uh, and when he comes to David, he tells him the story, and David said, I knew it. When I saw Doak the Edomite there that day, I knew he was sure to tell Saul. And this is what he said, now I have caused the death of all your father's family. 
Have you ever been in a situation where something that you've done just so innocently has catastrophic effects? Even today, people may live with burdens about things that have happened to them that really were not intended, not even, not even their mistake, but sometimes they may be, but maybe a small thing, but the results of it are so catastrophic. For me, the thing that springs to my mind every time I think of this is, is that little seven-year-old niece of mine that I was supposed to pick up and take home to our place to play. It was January, way back, something like 35 years ago. But I didn't. I suggested that uh, we do it on the Friday night when I was taking the car home. I was biking during the week. I could have, and how I wish I had have done. Because that night I would bike home and because I wasn't picking her up, we threw her, walked off, went off and played with her mates and on the way home she was abducted. And I feel like it was all my fault. I don't say that it's tore me down you know, every moment of the day throughout the whole of my life, but it certainly had a terrible effect on me because it was not my fault. But if I had only known, of course, of course I could have taken the car and picked her up. And you might know, have stories in your own lives of things that have happened, and you say, Lord, how do I deal with that? That was colossal. It was not my fault, and yet I feel like I am totally responsible for that. And that's what David felt like. He said, now I have caused the death of all your father's family. That's what he said to Abiathar. From there, he goes to the cave of Adullam. And I've just got a few slides here of, of the cave of Adullam. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a cave that's away out there in the wilderness in Israel. It's a cave that, um, it's, it's, it's caves everywhere, basically. It's a network of caves like rabbit burrows. You know, they're all connected up. You can get in in one place, go right through and come out the other place. And it was a perfect place for David to hide. And here's a few slides of it. And you see there's another entrance to it right there. And there's another one up there. And there's another one, and there's David just slipping into one of those entrances, probably snapped by um, one of his followers uh, with his iPad just as he, uh, as he followed him into the cave. Something, uh, there's a story about how uh, that happened to David while he was there in, that, in, that, in those caves. Because remember that he is, being, he is still being hunted. And Saul comes after him, and Saul's got about 300 men on this particular day, and they're working around all of the valleys of, uh, of that wilderness area and trying to find where David was hiding, and they were hiding in the caves. And Saul does something which all men have to do from time to time. He sneaks into one of these caves just to relieve himself, and a perfectly natural thing to do. And while he, but back in that same cave, there's David. He doesn't know he's there. David's men were hiding further back in that, in that very cave. And, they, and David's men said to him, look, uh, now's your opportunity. Get out there and kill him. But David refuses to kill him. And, and then and Saul sneaks away afterwards. But while he was there, um, David takes his sword, that beautiful Goliath sword, and rips the bottom off his robe. I reckon it's such a cool story, eh? 
Saul doesn't even notice that he's whipped the bottom off his robe and he heads off outside and he doesn't even realise that he's been got. And he's, as when he gets out there, then David um, comes out of the cave and he shouts after him and, and David came out and shouted after him, my Lord the King. And then Saul looked around and David bowed himself down to the ground and he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed. And I call this story um, incredible constraints. Because we were, you know, in that situation, surely he, he was in a position to be able, to, and quite justified in being able to go and take Saul's life because he was being hounded by Saul. It was his own life that was at stake, but Saul refused to do that because he accepted that God had put Saul there, even though God was not happy with Saul's performance, even though he had withdrawn his spirit from him, and Saul was going absolutely wonky mad. Um, nevertheless, he refused to put out his hand and touch him. He wanted to leave it until such time as God dealt with it himself. And he called out and he says, look, my father, what I have in my hand, it's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off. I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill you. To kill, to kill me. And when David had finished, Saul calls back. He says, is that really you, my son, David? And he began to cry. And he said to David, you're a better man than I am. For you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly, amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. That was one story. There are others. Yeah, and later on, a few years later, Saul goes back to town at that point there and stops chasing him. But a few years later, he hears again that, um, that Saul is in a certain area, David's in a certain area, and Saul goes after him again. And that's the story that Craig told us about three weeks ago in his introduction to this whole series where they're all sleeping in the valley and they sneak in and grab his his spear and, and his water bottle and get out and go up and fall out in much the same way as this happened. That, that happened there as well. And, and then there's another story, though, is when David doesn't get it right. And on that particular occasion, um, he is going off to rumble against somebody who, who did offend him, who didn't give him food when he asked for it, and he's going out for revenge, and he gets intercepted um, by someone who turns him back before he does himself an incredible injustice. But anyway, we can't go there on that one today. That's in next week's sermon, so it's a, bit, a little bit like Coronation Street, isn't it? You have to wait till next week to get that installment, and Craig's going to talk about it next week. Okay. But all of these stories are what I would call the, the biography of David, written in the, in the first and second books of Samuel, by Samuel and maybe the um, prophets that succeeded Samuel, because remember Samuel tells of uh, the book of Samuel tells of Samuel's death as well. And so, but so 
that's who they think actually wrote it. But they are the stories that are recorded there, the biography, the stories about David. But we are actually very privileged in David's case because David himself also was a prolific writer. And it's in that those, the writings of David that we really get to look right into David's heart. And he tells the story of what it felt like to be out there in the desert for all of those years. Does anybody know how long David was out in the desert for? He was out there. There's, there's very little, few dates that we can work off, except for the date that when it all ends and Jonathan and Saul die and uh, David is eventually made king. He's 30 at that stage. But he, from the time that Saul sent him out, he was probably out in the desert for anywhere between seven and 10 years. That's a long time to be hounded by somebody, to have to hide away and to live the way that he lived. Yeah, incredible story, really. But in, and while he's there, I guess David, a lot of the time, he's got time on his hands, hasn't he? And so he writes these psalms that we read all the time. So many of them were actually written out there in the desert. And I just want to refer to just bits of three of them, just to get a look at what David actually thinks. And one of the most well-known psalms that, we know of was the, Psalm 23. We quote it everywhere. And you can see, if you know that David wrote this out there in the desert, you can see it in the writings, can't you? He says, even though, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I won't be afraid, for you are close to me. Your rod and staff protect and comfort me. I want you to notice out of that that he says, even when I walk through that darkest valley. Many of us may have had occasions where we've walked through valleys in our lives. We may even use the expression, I am going through a wilderness experience. But what that means is things aren't going well. It doesn't mean we're necessarily living in the wilderness. But in our lives, we feel like things are going really hard against us. Okay, and so we use that expression. But David says, when we walk through that valley, because those valley experiences do end. And you say, well, hang on a minute. What if that valley experience is permanent? Well, even then, they end. And I don't say that flippantly. Because even there, David says, um, surely your goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And then I will live in the house of the Lord forever. I used to be a tramper. Used to walk up valleys. And a lot of the valleys that we used to walk up, we knew very well when we got to the head of the valley that there really was no way out when we got there, except up. So when you got to the head of the valley, you would start climbing up um, creek beds and things like that, and you had to go up and get out. And, you know, some of the experiences that we go through life are like that, aren't they? We know that there is how this is going to end. But I think, and as I said before, I don't say this flippantly at all, when we think about it, we need to take our eyes off the hole in the ground and start looking at the hole in the ground. And that's what David was doing. David really did doubt whether he was ever going to get out of this situation. But David's eyes were set higher. He knew very well in the end that there was a future for him. And in the end, he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
Psalm 28 is another one of the Psalms that I think are, that's, uh, that help us understand what, what David was feeling as he was there in those, uh, in those caves and those other places that he lived. And he said in this one, he says, I pray to you, O Lord, my rock, do not turn a deaf ear to me. If you are silent, I might as well give up and die. And have you ever felt that as you, you've been praying about a situation which appears like it's never going to change? It keeps, it rolls on, it rolls on into the next year and then the year after. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you say, God, if you are silent, I might as well give up and die. Well, that's what David was feeling at this point. Now, in the end of all of David's psalms, he's, he becomes overjoyed as he, as he realizes that God is listening to his psalms. But here, I just want to focus on this verse 3 for a moment. He says, listen to my prayer for my mercy as I cry to you for help, as I lift my hands towards your holy sanctuary. So what's happening here? Picture David in this, in this cave, and he steps outside things are calm outside, there's nobody around. He steps outside into the sunlight and he is praying this prayer from just outside that cave. And he turns and he faces towards Jerusalem and he lifts up his hand, he says, towards your holy sanctuary. What's this? So he's looking towards Jerusalem. Why? He's not the first person to have done this, not the only person to have done this in the scriptures. Daniel was another one who did this when he was in his room. He looked towards Jerusalem as he prayed. Remember, he was told he wasn't allowed to pray anymore, um, but the window faced Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees as he always did, and he looked towards Jerusalem as he prayed. Why? Because that was where God had chosen to place his name. And in that place at Jerusalem, there, there was no temple there yet, but the tabernacle was still there. And uh, it was in the the tent of that tabernacle that Moses used to go to and sit and talk to God. And others had too. And he, uh, if he was king, would have been doing exactly the same thing. He can't go there. Why? Because he is out there in the wilderness and if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to die. He knows that. But he's able to stand and look towards that place and recognize God is there. And begs of him, he says, I lift, as I lift my hands towards your holy tent sanctuary and to hear my prayer. And I think that that is really part of, really the secret to David's success throughout those years. There's another one, Psalm 27, just one psalm back. Hear me as I pray, O oh God, be merciful to me uh, and answer me. And then in verse 8, it says, Verse 9, it says, Do not turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation. So that's his prayer. But I skipped verse 8. I want to go back to the 8 right now. In that prayer, he says, My God has heard you say, Come and talk with me. My heart responds, Lord, I am coming. David felt a relationship with God. He felt he had, he was able to interact with God and in his heart, he thinks, he, he feels like God is calling him. I can tell you that a few weeks ago, quite a few, about six weeks ago, even as I'm preparing this message, one morning I woke up, a Saturday morning it was when we had been sleeping in and, um, and I, all of a sudden I just said to Kim, I said, I've got to get up, I feel God is calling me. 
And I got up and I got my Bible and started doing my quiet time. I could have gone for another hour. I would have loved to. But I felt that. And, you know, it was only a day after that that I read in my quiet time this verse. And I was still remembering what had happened the day before. God does do that. He calls to us. He draws. He wants to draw us to himself. And he says, my heart has heard you say, come, come and talk to me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. It is my belief that David just didn't didn't just go into the desert to flee Saul. I believe David went into the desert to find God. David didn't know that. He went, he was fleeing from Saul. And he went out there and he spent all those years in the desert. It was, all, it was during that time in the desert that David really came to know God in a very personal and a very real way. Maybe... Several of you people might be going through desert experiences even at this point. Or may have done in years gone by. I know I certainly did. I didn't call it a desert experience at the time, but there were years, you know, when I wondered what God was trying to do with me. I had felt the call of God to go into some kind of ministry or mission way back when I was about 40 years old. And I even put my business on the market to try and make that happen. But it didn't sell, and instead of that, I hurt my back. And then over the next few years, I was walking around on sticks, and all that mission stuff was kind of gone out of my head because it was just a matter of how do I get back on my feet again. And during those years, we also experienced um, family tragedies, and then finally a marriage breakup, and a whole heap of things just came together. And during those years, I knew... I didn't think about it. I didn't call it that at the time, but looking back, I know that that was what you would call a desert experience. And you say, why would God do that to me? And I think it is simply this, that I had a desire to serve him, but until I had a message, there was nothing I could do with that. And God taught me so much during those years that were very difficult in my life. And those years and those circumstances eventually brought me here to Alexandra. That's how we come to know God. So, repeat. The up-to-date version is on the computer there, not up under my desk. (laughs) In one of my Bibles, way back 40 years ago, um, I wrote this verse. I didn't know where it came from. It turns out that it was actually the second verse of a hymn by George Goodman. Jesus, Lord, I need your wisdom for perplexing problems press. And without you, I am foolishness and bear the strain and stress. But if you would counsel me, I could true and upright be. I believe that verse to be in the Bible because I think that explains it. Explains desert experiences. We feel like that, but we also know that God is doing something there in those desert experiences. I don't fancy myself to be any kind of counselor at all but I have been through experiences and it could be that some of you are going through experiences like this even right now afterwards you can come and grab a coffee and come and sit at a table with me and talk about it if you want or if you feel the need to pray about it we've got a prayer team over in the corner later on and you can go and share in prayer 
But anyway, if you are there, you're not the only one in the world that's going through this thing. God is doing something in your life. And yeah, and if we can help in any way, we would very much like to.